You're listening to the all-new Veterinary Podcast, The Vet Chat, with fellow vets and hosts, Matt Wells and Steve O'Leary. Join us as we speak to a wide variety of industry professionals about hot topics and subjects affecting animal health in New Zealand. Thanks for listening. Right, well, good day, everybody. Welcome along to another episode of The Vet Chat. I'm Matt Wells. Today we are talking salmonella. So as I'm sure some of you are aware, there's been a few changes on the salmonella front, particularly on the on the dairy cattle side in, in recent years. So a bit of renewed interest out there. So our guest today to help us sort of work our way through that is Chris Compton. Welcome along, Chris. Yeah, thanks very much, Matt. And thanks for the invitation to join you on this podcast today. Yeah, good to have you. So just a, a quick introduction for those that don't know Chris, you're fairly fairly well-known name. If you're looking for, if you're searching around in SciQuest or anywhere really in, in online sort of journals, um, the name Compton comes up a fair bit. So plenty of publications out there, but you do have a background in clinical practice. You were you were at, well, what's now in Nexa and Morrinsville for quite a few years, weren't you? That's right, Matt. Yeah, 19 years, I believe. I was uh, there and based in Morrinsville. It was a great, great time. I enjoyed it so much. Yeah. Yeah, well, we overlapped for, what, six or seven of those years um, when Correct. I was there as well. So you, you kind of branched out into research, um, mostly in the dairy side while you were there too, didn't you? You sort of worked alongside Scott McDougall. So. Correct. Pretty much soon after, you know, um, that uh, research group got underway, I, I joined and undertook some further postgraduate training to kind of give me the capabilities I needed for that and then stayed in that role for about nine or ten years, I think it was. You're obviously at Massey now as a senior lecturer in um, veterinary epidemiology. And, That's um, my title, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose you, you're now known to a new generation of, of the, the younger vets as, as one, of the, one of the lecturers, I suppose. And the other thing I guess that you're doing there is, is managing research projects and under and postgraduate students. And, and that's really where coming around to why you're here, I suppose, because the current research project or one of the ones that you're currently involved with is, is around salmonella, isn't it? That's correct, yeah. Um, so it's probably coming up a year or so ago that we were approached, uh, the epicenter was approached by MPI to undertake uh, some research into what was apparently a, an increasing problem with salmonella diagnosis in dairy cattle in New Zealand. So I suppose we've started at the beginning, I guess. So can you can you take us through what has changed? What what is different, I guess, about salmonella in, in um, the last few years? So yeah, in a, in a nutshell, then the problem is that the number of salmonella diagnoses in dairy cows or dairy cattle is increasing. That much we know, but the true number of animals affected and the causes of these outbreaks on affected farms are poorly understood. The uh, MPI, they under John Watts's kind of guidance, they operate an early uh, aberration reporting system. So this is a system where they're monitoring diagnoses from uh, animals in New Zealand. So these are reported, anonymized data reported by veterinary diagnostic labs. And uh, they could see that there was a, a trend of increasing diagnoses of salmonella in dairy cattle. And so this started the the process going, um, at least with you know, between us and them, between mm. the centre and MPI. You know, mm. a bit over so it's quite, quite, quite a large increase, actually. I, I think over five years or so, it's about a five-fold increase, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, about, quite, about a three-fold uh, increase over the 2011 kind of numbers. And those numbers back then, they 
prompted um, the uh, 2012 uh, survey um, or case control study, should I say, which was um, directed by Mark Stevenson and others, others at Epicenter. And those who have been in practice for a few years would remember that, some of the factors around that. And we can come to that a little bit later on. Yeah. So, yep. yeah, so that's um, kind of what's prompted, you know, where we are at the moment. So I suppose, I mean, that's that's surveillance in action, isn't it? I guess is probably the point that we, we, we probably all should look at surveillance data when it comes. Um, I see I've got something recently from one of the labs, a link to some of the MPI work, which I, th- I think they've refreshed it. And Yeah, that's dead right. Yeah, so it's very timely that we're talking about this today because there is the, the link in, uh, again, it's Jonathan Watts who's been working on that. And so we've got some new summary data of signal minutes or, you know, the the conditions which have which are reported by vets and Jonathan I think is is looking to try and uh, enhance the, the partnership between veterinarians and MPI to improve the, the surveillance system and um, for those who you know not all that familiar for purposes of surveillance but it's really about scanning for emerging patterns of disease which are of concern and so Samela has come up amongst that but there may well be others in the future, and and this is very much a, a partnership because you know the veterinarians in the field are the eyes and ears, and that data is kind of collated and reported by MPI, and and now we're starting to see some feedback to vets to I guess give an overview of of the disease situation, um, and so I think was to dairy cattle was the one which was reported, but that may extend to other species as well. So it's well worth a look um, that MPI that email. Yeah, it's it's a little bit it's presented in a slightly nicer way than it has been previously, which is quite quite good. But and I, I guess the whole point of this type of thing is that I mean, having I mean, both of us spend a bit of time in practice, and and Salmonella is a kind of a funny disease. It's quite sporadic, isn't it? Or historically, it's been quite sporadic, and and so you sort of you'd you'd kind of see maybe on average as a clinician, certainly where we were working, maybe one or two cases per year. Yeah. It- Exactly. Outbreaks, yeah. I suppose. And yes, yeah. So we would call them outbreaks because it's it's not an endemic disease like mastitis, or, but it would pop up sporadically and sometimes unpredictably. And it's so it's it's well known to clinicians. In fact, I think most dairy vets will encounter cases in the first few years of their practice. So we recognise there's multiple serotypes, and there's you know some of those crossover different species, both livestock and wild animal species as well. And we also know there's kind of been long-term fluctuations in the number of salmonella diagnoses, but we do recognise this increase in particular of serotypes, Bovis morbificans, Brandenburg and Typhimurium in dairy cattle. So this troika of uh, serotypes are driving this increase in total cases in um, in dairy cattle. Yeah, what a great word troika is. Wow, that was, yeah. that was a good one to throw in. The beauty of the surveillance system is that, you know, with a sporadic disease as a clinician, you kind of sit there and you go, oh, yeah, normally I might see one or two in a, um, on average in a year, but that might mean some years I see none and some years I see four or five. And you aren't aware you're in your own little bubble. I should be careful saying the word bubble these days. It has a different connotation, but you're in your own little world there and, and that four or five cases is kind of significant to you, but until you have your conversation with your colleagues and go, oh, actually, everybody else is seeing four or five cases, and then you kind of go, okay, you know, in our case, gee, it looks like there's more salmonella around Morrinsville or, you know, in the in the sort of eastern Waikato region. 
But that next step to is that a, an upper North Island issue? Is it a whole of the North Island? Is it the whole of New Zealand? Is really where surveillance comes in? So it's kind of the, the importance of it, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's understanding that bigger picture, the trends over time, and and kind of newly emerging problems as well. So in the last uh, I think two to three years, we've had this novel serotypes in New Zealand at least. Salmonella give has emerged in the Waikato, and so that's that's of concern. Uh, we have something going on we okay so we can describe these things retrospectively but this these unanswered questions about why is this happening and what can we do about it really i'm glad you took the step and pronounced that one i was i was wondering how to actually pronounce it so i'm <laughs> glad you've clarified it i was hoping i wasn't going to i was wondering whether to go with give or jive or... <laughs> well I, i'm only listening to others yeah more wiser than i yeah right so so i suppose obviously so it's popped up on the radar of mpi so i guess there's there's good reason why something like salmonella comes up on their radar and raises a few flags for them what in particular i suppose got their interest yeah well i guess you know for veterinarians you know we're immediately interested in animal disease and the effect on health and production of animals. So, you know, and that's a, a remit of the of MPI, but, but their, their concern, and I, and I would hope our concern as uh, veterinarians also goes much wider than that. So there's, you know, in affected animals and, and, and herds, there's kind of severe adverse animal welfare outcomes because of the suffering and death. Going wider again, we have often we need we're usually treating these animals with uh, anti antimicrobials, and so that raises the you know the the risk of development of antimicrobial resistance. Mm. You can uh, use a lot in those outbreaks. Too, that's right. So. Yeah. yeah. So there can be sometimes large proportions of animals affected, whether they be calves or, or or adult cows. So you know that's a lot of volume of antibiotic. Which needs to be used, and this is, you know, a is a concern where in a small population you're exposing bacteria to large amounts of antibiotic. This is a uh, increases the risk of development of antimicrobial resistance, which is a concern. And and it's some of that antimicrobial resistance is a real thing. It's uh, it does occur in New Zealand. It's, it's uh, monitored. It's increasing over time across all salmonella, so both human and non-human pathogens. Generally, it's at a lower level than most international countries, but we want to keep it that way. And that's why we really want to avoid as far as possible, you know, the prophylactic or metaphylactic use of antibiotics in, in large populations. Yep. So there's other, other kind of risks as well. Um, and one which is is kind of also immediately obvious is the risk to public health. And that's particularly in the farm workers or families of farm workers. So this uh, is an immediate concern. Uh, and there may also be other wider community public risks as well, though these are kind of less well defined at the moment, but maybe we can talk about that a little bit later on. So this public health is a real big part of this story as well. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, I guess salmonella is sure pretty much everyone listening to the to this knows is a risk to humans and, and much the same type of disease I guess in, in humans as it is in cattle are pretty severe or the well I should probably clarify that really that the there are there are different forms I mean there's enteric salmonellosis which is food poisoning basically driven in, in humans so through contaminated food or as you say workers farm workers but probably the the simplest way to get it for most of those people would be drinking raw milk really wouldn't it 
Um, yep, so from a wider public point of view, the fact that we pasteurise the milk means that general public food safety is not a big issue. So they, they can still supply, can't they, the farmers that have got a salmonella um, outbreak? Yes, it's, it's managed by uh, some companies to reduce you know any kind of risk at their storage and processing facilities, as you can imagine. But yeah, pasteurisation eliminates that risk for pasteurised milk products. So that's that's kind of managed at the global scale. More farm workers who are definitely more milk yeah, and that farm, sort of thing, farm but, workers, yeah. um, and of course, you know, we ourselves as veterinarians, yep. we're a real big risk carving mm. those Brandenburg abortions or um, yeah. working with scouring cattle. So, yep. PPE yep. and hygiene so important. We talk about flags going up, I suppose, at, at MPI and, and alongside, I guess there's a, there's a nice mirroring graph of the number of cases going up in cattle and the number of human cases going up mm. of bovis morbificans, for example. Mm. So, mm. so you know, when when that starts to happen, projects start to um, be initiated to try and find yeah. it, tends to, tends to press a few more buttons, doesn't it? Yeah, so. yep. So we've, I guess, seen that in the salmonella story. So particularly where there's human health consequences alongside animal health consequences, then, you know, the wheels start to go more rapidly in motion because um, there's, there's other concerns as well. well. I mean, we think of salmonella in humans as, as being food poisoning primarily because that's what we're familiar with here. But um, historically, in the pre-antibiotic era and even in countries with poorer sanitation, even now, there's more of an issue with typhoid fever, which yeah. is a salmonella, yep. so which is a different disease again. I mean, that's a sort yep. of multi-systemic characterized by fever and, and hence the name, I suppose, typhoid fever. But funnily enough, actually, one of the symptoms is constipation rather than diarrhea. So... So yeah, in uh, in the early days of trying to characterise this bacterium, you know they broadly cast you know as non-typhoid salmonella and, and typhoid salmonella. So we should remember that it's of the same genus, the uh, salmonella that we deal with as um, dairy cl- dairy clinicians. Well, you, you mentioned the early days of trying to characterise it. The guy that actually discovered, or the guy that the guy that it's named after, was a vet. In fact, so we have had a contribution to the yeah. to the um, from the vet profession to the medical side mm. as well. There, so there was a guy. Funnily enough, his name was well to us, he'd be Daniel Salmon. So he was a guy who who worked for the USDA, so the equivalent of MPI in in America, I suppose. And he didn't discover it himself. One of the guys that worked in his lab actually discovered it and named it after him. But if you're like me and you're probably lying awake at night wondering why the heck it's called salmonella instead of salmonella, because he was he was a lad from New Jersey and <laughs> and liked to pronounce his name with an L in it, so he was actually Daniel Salmon. Um, okay. So it's why, it's why we call it salmonella instead of salmonella. So obviously pretty serious on, on both the vet and the human side. So I guess that, as you say, that kind of tends to get people a bit more into bit more excited and get some um, projects going and that sort of thing. So, so I suppose we're a long way from knowing exactly what's going on. There's obviously something happening. There's a, an emerging issue, probably more than emerging, it's, a, it's an ongoing issue. Sort of alluded to the fact that we've had outbreaks before. We've had um, problems previously. So is there anything that we can sort of at the moment relate back to those previous ones? I mean, you've referred to Mark Stevenson's work back from the sort of early 2010s, about 10, 12 years ago. Is there anything that we can sort of take from that? I certainly think that's that was you know really important research for um, the dairy industry and probably still informs us today. And so I think it's worthwhile reminding the listeners, you know, just what was established in that study. 
And so similar to the current situation, MPI reported increases in cases in dairy herds in late 2011. And so they initiated a case control study uh, again to identify herd level risk factors for these outbreaks. And they considered cases that emerged in the 2011-12 season. And they identified three significant risk factors. So feeding supplements uh, from continuous feed troughs, feeding pelletized magnesium supplements, and feeding palm kernel expeller. So, I mean, Good these, old PKE. Yeah, yeah. the PKE. Blame so, for all sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so their recommendations were that measures should be taken to reduce bacterial contamination of supplementary feeds. Okay, so so it wasn't necessarily... So how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, well, so I guess storage, rodent control, those probably be the key key kind of things. And, and probably, too, cleaning of these continuous troughs, which as we've all seen them on our visits, you know, on the a feed pad area, you know, a long line of um, troughs, which the cows, you know, can feed from, you know, shoulder to shoulder from either side. So... You know, if those are not regularly uh, cleaned and washed out, then, you know, these um, are sources of feed for wild birds and rodents, for sure. So, yeah, so, so management of that might be one practical kind of application, Matt. It's probably then you go into a bit of speculation as to why those things actually were associated. I mean, there was about yeah. a 10 times higher risk, wasn't there? Yeah, so um, the, the pelletized magnesium, you're right, that had an odds ratio of a, or really almost equate it to a risk, a tenfold increase in risk of a herd yes. developing an outbreak. So I think they, the authors kind of used the word uh, as a trigger. And so there was speculation, well, yeah, informed speculation, try to understand that kind of process where the pelletized um, magnesium would stay within the um, abomasum and would change the rumen and abomasum and change the, the pH there and, and allow the uh, proliferation of the salmonella, which would ordinarily be deactivated by the uh, acidic pH in the rumen. So that was thought to be the mechanism. So it, it wasn't you know, in every case. So as with any kind of many kinds of diseases, herd level diseases, which we face as clinicians, we have this interaction between the host, the environment and the pathogen. And so we've, we've got these factors interacting with one another. So, but certainly pelletized magnesium product came up and and, you know, subsequently it was withdrawn withdrawn from market, as you may know. And yes, the number of outbreaks did diminish after that. However, if you follow the literature, uh, Michael Shellcrest kind of, I think was in VetScript uh, just a few years ago, noted that the use of pelletized magnesium has, is, is still a thing, still a management practice of some farmers, and it's still associated with outbreaks of salmonella. So yeah. um, I wouldn't say that that's completely gone away. We have short mm. memories, um, farmers and <laughs> vets and, and perhaps retailers as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was involved to some extent in, in a bit of the, the work around that uh, sort of in the background. But yeah, it was interesting. I mean, the comments being made that you could actually see the pellets coming through in the feces. Yeah. Know, they were passing right through the gut. And I guess you talk about that interaction between host and environment and, and pathogen. And I suppose, you know, which one of those is kind of, and obviously there's probably a few different things going on. But essentially, I suppose what we're saying is that we think what the magnesium probably did was just 
allow a bigger infective dose. It just meant that mm. there were more yep. salmonella making their way through to the back of the gut exactly. you know, to, to where yep. they were going to do the damage yep. simple, in fairly simple terms. Yep. So some of the challenge studies back in the 50s and 60s and trying to understand the salmonella, they kind of did establish that you know the higher the infective dose, the more severe the disease. And I think it was about 10 to the 6th, 10 to the 8th kind of organisms could do that for an adult cow so yeah you're right it's it's just a, a an effective dose effect a couple of things i suppose with the feeding of the supplement there was a one of the slightly complicating things i think from from memory reading the paper was that a lot of people who were feeding palm kernel tended to be using the pelletized magnesium as well so so you sort of had this slight sort of confounding thing there but um, one of the theories was that with those those long troughs, the, the uh, continuous feeding troughs, probably more risk for fecal oral transmission between between cows too, but also the ability for certain cows to gorge themselves and eat, and eat a larger quantity than others. So yeah, that, that's speculative, I guess, as to mm. some of the other reasons too. So yeah, it may well be the case. I know you know, especially uh, young stock not familiar with PK, that sometimes can take a little while to develop acquire the taste for it and you know you've got all those other factors of mixing and yeah that dietary preference and and the dominant behavior of, of animals um, and you know space it at the at the bunker if you like or at the feed <laughs> mm. face you know is that you know is the room for the the less dominant younger possible animals to get in so these are you know management factors so this is part of the environment of the whole story which you know, needs to be considered, you know, when trying to understand, you know, why these diseases might occur. It's, yeah, it's not just disease plus, uh, pathogen plus animal. We've got disease. It's it's much more than that. Mm-hmm. Before we move on from that, the, the one thing I, th- I think that, you know, there were quite a few fairly experienced clinicians involved who probably were sounding the warning, I guess, even before MPI picked, on, uh, picked up on it in that case where, because the pattern of disease actually changed too from that sort of sporadic, the kind of outbreaks that you and I saw in practice that we were talking about earlier. It was a, it was a low morbidity but high mortality disease. So less than 5% of the herd affected, but of those, um, up to half of those dying in some cases. But what actually happened in that outbreak around just after 2010 was it actually seemed to change from a low morbidity, high mortality disease to a high morbidity, low mortality. So you actually had big proportions of herds affected, but less severely affected. And even the timing changed. It actually changed from a from a disease around calving to a disease that was actually happening around peak lactation leading up to, to mating. So, yeah. Yes, yeah, you're correct in all those things. It, it did seem to spread further. Uh, it wasn't just a peripartum uh, or transition cow problem. And there were these changes, and some of the outbreaks were quite spectacular, and some of them yeah. have been reported in proceedings from you know, DCV conferences and very alarming and yeah, hugely impacting. If you're listening and you want a good description of what those were like, there's a couple of articles, as you say, there's a few in the proceedings, but there's one from Bill Teague. There's also one from Pete Morgan. Bill's one was great. Good practical description. Bit of a horror story, to be honest, but um, the, the great thing. So I was actually on one of my roles at that time was to organise the programme for the DCV conference. And Bill put his submission in for the conference and put the the written proceedings in under the title of Bloody Shit Happens, which which I thought was the 
best title I'd ever seen. Let's just say it ended up being called something quite anemic like Salmonella, Typhimurium, <laughs> Outbreaks and Dairy and Dairy Cattle. But, uh, I know you're doing a presentation on this at the next um, DCV conference. So so the title Bloody Shit Happens might still be available for you, Chris. Yeah, if you see if the appetite is still there for it. Yeah, I'll have to ask Bill whether I can borrow it. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess the point of sort of filling people back in on that is, uh, are we seeing anything yeah. similar? No. Or do we know that is, yet? That or? is, you know, part of the problem really is that, you know, the issue is that the information that gets through the MPI, as I said, comes from the labs and the labs get their information about the outbreak from the what's written on the submission form from the vets. And the vets are usually there, you know, pretty much at the start. And so they will usually get the, the species. They may write down the number of animals that are affected. Much less common, they might would include information about the numbers of animals in the mob that are, you know, at risk. But that's early in the outbreak, you know, maybe only a small number, but we don't have, and there's no, okay, the disease, you know, the outbreak goes on for, you know, numbers of days or possibly weeks, and but there's no need to take more samples because it's, you know, apparent what's going on. So there's no update on that final number of animals that are affected either. So we can't determine the morbidity or mortality rates without, you know, getting that end of outbreak information. Yeah, it's been no good description or no, not much guidance on that. It, it does seem to vary immensely between farms for reasons that are unclear. Yeah, so so the things I suppose that it has in common is that there's just far more cases yeah. than, than yeah. normal. We don't yet know whether it is similar in terms of the pattern within herds, within individuals, even within regions. I suppose all we're seeing is that there appears to be an emerging uh, different serotype in GIV, in the Waikato at least, so so maybe that's one thing that is different from the previous outbreak. I guess we've had outbreaks previously with emerging serotypes, obviously Brandenburg in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. so that was a, another um, so. new one in New Zealand, you know, emerged in uh, South, South uh, Southland and South Otago, I think. Yeah, so that was first diagnosed in sheep flocks with abortions in 1996 and spread throughout the sheep population in the lower South Island. And then uh, was diagnosed in calves and adult cattle with gastroenteritis and cause of abortion in 1999. And about the same time, it started to emerge in other livestock and you know, we had horses, we had goats, deer, and importantly in humans as well. Yeah. And, and to that effect, it was became apparent that it was a, and it was named as a zoonosis. Yeah, so the cases were almost entirely directly attributed to contact yeah, with livestock. Coming back, I suppose you, you talk your your interaction between host and pathogen and environment. So, so in that case, the outbreak is is basically down to a change in pathogen. So, yeah, yeah and so we've got different sort of situations in, in every case, I suppose. For those, there might be a few people who are listening who are either outside of New Zealand or or trained outside of New Zealand and have dealt with Salmonella Dublin. So one thing that we're very lucky for in New Zealand is that we don't have Dublin here. For whatever reason it just hasn't hasn't um, ever made it or established in New Zealand and it's a it's a good thing because it does become endemic. It the cows become long term shedders. It's probably a little bit more, I suppose, if you if you think parallels with lepto, it's a little more like hard joe um, in terms of becoming sort of established and, and transmitting and, and maintaining itself within within herds and causing abortion as well. So we're very lucky that we don't at least have that, I suppose. Yeah, stereotype is particularly a problem in Europe. In fact, they have you know, national control programs to try to manage it and reduce the, the its prevalence. Um, it also occurs in North America. 
but is um, I think yeah, less common, or it's not as not as common as in Europe. So yes, uh, it is detected or identified in Australia as well. Um, but to my knowledge, uh, well, it's not been identified in New Zealand. We hope that remains the case. Yeah. So I guess we haven't had you know live cattle into New Zealand from imported for many years, really. Um, 30, 40, I'm not sure, quite a few. Mm. Probably, yeah, it's a good question, actually. I suppose in recent times it's been, importations have been seen yeah, and, and yeah, embryos yeah, rather than, yeah. um, in theory, we don't bring disease in with those. But yeah, let's let's not dwell on that for too long, shall we? <laughs> From a clinician's perspective, I suppose one of the important things is what is the response in these herds like? So I suppose we've already talked a wee bit about resistance, but and maybe this is stuff we still need to find out. We probably don't have a good feeling for it yet, but I guess it, probably people would like to be reassured that if they do treat with antibiotics, they're going to respond okay. If they do vaccinate, they're going to respond okay. Do we have any sort of feel for that yet? Yeah, certainly, you know, the antibiotic usage is, is very common and I think in some countries it's a little bit debatable whether they use it. I think but this is particularly around Dublin some beliefs that it might increase the probability that animals become carriers but I think in New Zealand setting we have systemically ill animals um, and well I guess in my experience you know we're always treat with uh, broad spectrum antibiotics yeah, commonly oxytetracyclines um, maybe um, sulfonamides or you know synthetic penicillins so these are you know I think are probably cornerstones of, of treatment in yeah, New Zealand settings, yeah. and then there's kind of supportive treatment with fluid therapy. Um, Absolutely. Um, so these are, you know, these are the, you know, the start of of treating, you know, sick and affected animals. Yeah. Yeah. The the two that are number one and or the the two that are the first preferences are oxytet and um, trimethoprim sulfur. Yeah. On the on the NTVA guidelines anyway, and and obviously we tend to probably go for the one that's green first yep. um, and oxytet. Yeah. Um, so I'm assuming that a lot of practitioners do, but just I mean this is a purely personal experience, I guess. But I tended to find that sulfonamides worked better when I was in practice. So, so I I would prefer to use sulfonamides if I if I could. But um, yeah, I think the well the oxytetracyclines would have the longer acting preparation, which could be helpful for. You know, yes, larger groups true. or perhaps uh, animals in dry cow mob, which were more difficult to manage. So some flexibility there. Probably yeah. should also consider the non-steroidals, although anti-inflammatories, um, although I guess we need to pay attention to hydration and make sure we're not causing any adverse effects as well. But Absolutely. That's the starting point, really, I would think, Matt. But there's a lot of other things which are um, to do with the control of this disease, which mm. I think clinicians need to have at the forefront of their mind if they come across this or they suspect it. I think the presentation is, is often quite clear, but even if it's on the differential diagnosis list, there's, there's got to be attention to isolating affected animals from the main mob or other age groups, you know, such, you know in calves or others being treated. So isolation, disinfection of those areas which are heavily contaminated, either with diarrhea or if it's an abortion, aborted calves, fetal fluids and membranes and safe disposal of them so that you know the farm dog or terrier doesn't drag them out and pull them around the, the paddock yep. okay you know thinking as well about could there be some known risk factors involved here we've already discussed some of them so attention to what might be going on the obvious risk factors you know this is an infectious disease of course so you know 
biosecurity, we've already talked about this, isolation, disinfection, but also biosecurity measures to prevent the spread of infection off the farm or to other groups of animals on the farm, thinking particularly of, of calves if the outbreak is in cows, movement of people, clothing off farm to a neighbour's farm or what goes on, sharing the, I don't know, the the, the waste milk or you, you name it, Those all those things are particularly potential avenues to spread this infection off the farm and the the PPE um, personal protective equipment um, personal hygiene measures so that people are protected and even go to the extent of restricting contact with animals for children or anyone who's immunocompromised this I think particularly children I think um, sadly in my days thought of the disease occurring and um, some young children who were on a farm that was had an outbreak um, they were with the calves and and yeah the calves got it and the kids got it and it wasn't a good thing so all these so remember that salmonella is not discerning about who it or what it infects really it, lots of mammals um, including humans vaccination I guess we probably should move on and talk a bit about vaccination I guess the good news is that most of the serotypes that we're seeing an increase in are in the vaccine with one or two notable exceptions I suppose so bovis morbificans Brandenburg typhimurium are in the um, New Zealand available product and uh, it's just not really clear what cross protection there might be from those across to other serotypes you know thinking particularly of GIV. Yeah. You can get a little bit of an indication by looking at surface and flagellar antigens and the crossover between the ones that are in the the vaccine and the one that you're looking to vaccinate against. It's a bit inexact but you know you can probably talk to the vaccine manufacturers and you know ask them about it you can get an indication of whether you're likely to get any much effect from sort of matching those up i think there's a pretty impressive looking table of all of them there's about 2600 different types of salmonella so you sort of yeah. got to work your way through a wee bit but um yeah you, you can get a bit of an idea anyway i think so so and you've got some experience of its use as well i think in earlier life for you yeah and, yeah, yeah. So, so i suppose one of the things about vaccine is just managing expectations and just being aware that when you're dealing with an outbreak you probably will it's not a vaccine that really eliminates disease, it reduces the severity of disease. So you might still see some animals that get a little bit sick and, and have some diarrhoea, but it tends to reduce how severely affected they are. And part of that's to do with the fact that it's a wholesale bacterin vaccine and it just generates antibodies and doesn't generate cell-mediated immunity, which is the protection that happens at gut level. So it prevents the septicemia, which tends to kill them, but is less effective at preventing the diarrhoea. So it certainly does help. So it's certainly a very important tool in the box there. We've sort of talked about what's going on. We've talked about what we know. There's a fair bit of what we don't know in there. And, and I guess that kind of brings us to, to your survey and trying to find out with all of those holes that we have, trying to find some answers, I suppose. So what are you doing with your survey? How are you going about that? So our survey is uh, we try to capture farms with cases. Um, so outbreaks which have occurred in the 2000. 21-22 dairy season. We have a case control study, so we need to capture cases that have emerged. And to do that, we are needing the help of veterinary practitioners who have submitted samples from which a positive salmonella diagnosis was made. These vets would have received information about the study when they had the initial report from the lab. And many of them would also have received a phone call recently from the lab reminding them about the study and asking them to uh, talk with their pharma clients 
So the vet is key in this process. And so they, we're asking vets to ask their farmers whether they would like to be part of the study, give them a bit of background about it, and then to pass on their, their name with the contact details to us so that we can take over from there. So it's really probably just a five-minute phone call. And it could easily be done just at the time when the serotype final diagnosis comes back, sort of, you know, three or, f- three or so weeks after the initial case. That will pass them over to um, our researchers, who then will carry out a uh, questionnaire or conduct a questionnaire, ask them a range of questions about what's happened on the farm and management going on around the time of the outbreak. So that's that's what attain us the cases. So I suppose it's got some similarities to what Mark Stevenson did with his study, doesn't it? Yeah. Except the the difference being that his was kind of retrospective, whereas yours is sort of well, what's the what's the opposite? Prospective. <laughs> so in in effect, I mean, with this the study got underway um, at the beginning of the season, and to be fair with everything that's happened in the last last year. COVID shortage of vets and shortage of farm workers, you know, we haven't been able to attain or enroll all the cases that we want to. So we're needing to to go backwards. So to try and get those cases, even if they were in springtime this season. So we're we're happy, you know, to take those cases and match them up with controls. The controls um, are being sourced with the help of Fonterra. Again, that's as that's a similar um, way to how it was run in 2012. And Fonterra will contact um, from their supplier list farmers, talk, talk to them about the study, and then ask if they want to be involved and then um, pass on their contact details again to our researchers who will carry out an interview with them. So there's some similarities, some differences, but it's a case control study and it's, it's packed the same way as, as Mark and his team did back in 2012. Right, so just a bunch of questions around the patterns and yeah, just trying to find out whether we've got some similar things going on, obviously. Yeah, but... so we need both the cases mm. and we compare the management practices and events on the farm in the cases who had the disease with those that did not have the disease. So we ask them the same questions and so we, we have we can come up with a with a type of analysis which gives us the the odds that um, a farm will be a case if it has some particular management for, compared with a farm that does not have the disease. So that's so... So I guess if you're if you're a vet who's listening and you had some cases last year or you had a case last year, yeah, get in touch. If no, if nobody has been in touch with you or if somebody um, has, oh yes, yeah, we've we've back, enrolled, so. yeah, numbers, but not enough. To, yeah, so with a study like this, you need to have enough cases to find a statistic to have yeah. statistical power to find a difference if it's really there. So you know, we need to reach the planned sample size. It's a great way for vets to demonstrate to their clients that they are proactive, that they are interested in trying to solve this problem. So these, you know, we perhaps we haven't really discussed the people impact, but this is a very real impact in farms that have a have an outbreak of um, salmonellosis. There's, there is many, many impacts, not just financial, but one can imagine the enormous disruption um, that would go on with an outbreak of disease, particularly if it's around calving time, management of sick animals, antibiotics, milk withholding, discards, sick farm workers, stress at an already stressful time of the year. I don't think this could be underplayed, really. 
you know, we've got the support of um, Rural Woman NZ who are, um, you know, have supported our, uh, our study and contacted their members. And they recognise that similar in the way to Lepto has a human a human impact and just doesn't happen behind the fence. It's It happens with people. There's actually a reasonable motivation from people who've been through something like this to try and make sure it doesn't happen to somebody else too, isn't it? Yeah, so farmers who have experienced it, many of them are really keen to share their experiences and and try to find a, a solution. They wouldn't want this to happen to others. Uh, yeah, most farmers are, are very keen to be involved in research if it can be worked out and, and we try to make that pace process as painless as possible both for the vets and the farmers. So if you're a vet who's out there listening and you have had cases in the last 12 months or so or you do have some in the next few months I guess yeah, um, so it's they should the, get in contact with you? Or? Yeah so for cases in the 2021-22 season so from essentially from you know June last year through to the end of this season so yep so they can find out a lot more about the study just by going to the study website massey.ac.nz forward slash salmonella couldn't be more easy or just type salmonella massey university and it'll come up at the top of the search there it does i just did it before so it definitely yeah, does come up very, at the top of the search easy, yeah. So, yeah. it has another very long url <laughs> which i won't try and repeat but that um, website that i gave you will take you to it so so there's information there for vets for farmers and places for people to register their interests so so that's what we're looking from for our vets good well hopefully it's got a few people interested there's a lot of pretty fascinating stuff that um, is is happening it's always I think it's one of the beauties of being an epidemiologist isn't it that things change all the time I mean I think we you know I think we mentioned this with Julie you keep yourself in a job because you know it's constantly changing and there's always something different that's happening and and the great thing I suppose in this case is that as a clinician you can be part of it you know you can contribute to it we really hope that we get some uh, increased response so, yeah we want need to learn more about this for sake of uh, farmers, the, the animals that they farm, the communities that they're in. Well, thank you very much, Chris. That's been really interesting. Hopefully we've inspired a few people and got them got them interested and maybe given people a bit of background and something helpful. So yeah, as I say, it's thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Much. Good to uh, talk with you about this, raise awareness and all the best for your podcast. Enjoyed it. Been a great experience. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening to The Vet Chat with Matt Wells and Steve O'Ealy. This show is proudly supported by Verbeck. If you want to find out more, go to nz.verbeck.com forward slash podcast.